It is uh, great to be back here, and uh, this is a joy just to be at this conference, and yet I am struggling a little bit. I'm going to have to adjust the, with these tables. This has a feel of a Vegas supper club a little bit, so I'm going to try. I'll be okay, I think. I'll get, I'll get there, but um, I understand what they're for. Um, but the conference has been a joy, and I'm honored to, to be a part of this, and just to see Christ as we've seen him. We've seen Jesus, the new Moses. We've seen Jesus, the King. We've seen Jesus, the teacher. We've seen Jesus, the center of our mission. And my assignment is to present Jesus, the man. Jesus, the man. Uh, Hebrews 12.3 says, Consider him who endured for, from, from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider him. And I want to consider him the man. Consider him the human being who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Let's pray. Father God, I will preach your word and trust you to apply it to the hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now we know that Jesus suffered more than any other human will or ever could suffer. Uh, Isaiah 53, 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I mean, that's really why he came the first time. Some have said that he did not come to be that Messiah that the Jews were expecting. He didn't come to overthrow the Romans and set up an earthly kingdom. He, he came to suffer, to be the man of sorrows, full and acquainted with much grief, to give his life a ransom for many. I mean, what happened on Good Friday was the culmination and fulfillment of what John meant, right? John the Baptist meant when he first introduced Jesus. And John 1, 29 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that phrase, Behold the Lamb of God, harkens back to the book of Exodus and the Passover Lamb. And, and that, that plague, that night that death was coming to the firstborn, those who took a lamb, and slayed it and took the blood of that lamb and placed it on the doorposts. The death angel passed by. Why? Because that lamb was the substitute for that firstborn. And that's Christ. As our brother just preached, that's, that's Christ being preached from the Old Testament. And yet, that's exact, exactly what John the Baptist meant. Behold the lamb. This is that fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Behold the lamb of God. He's here to be slain. He's here to suffer. He's here to die as a ransom. So we have to think about this. In order to suffer for us, Christ had to become one of us. The divine deity cannot suffer. God the Father, God in his divinity can not suffer. The impassibility of God. God is not touched by anything outside of him. He's not moved by our emotions, as a matter of fact. He's not moved by any consequences outside of himself. Nothing can hurt him. Nothing can infringe upon him. And his sovereign deity. Therefore, in order to redeem man, 
He had to become man, fully man, and yet fully God. Again, this, this mysterious hypostatic union of, of Christ and God, Jesus the man, and yet God divine, it's complicated. It's impossible, as a matter of fact, for humans and our finite brains to begin to wrap our, our minds around this. And yet this is the truth. He's fully God and fully man, and yet I want to focus on that fully man. Fully man. Actually, the early church also struggled with this idea. They, they struggled, really, with the idea that Jesus was fully man. That was actually one of the first heresies to creep into the church. The idea that Jesus was fully man was denied. Uh, things like monophysitism and docetism and Martianism. These, these all teaching that, in some respect or another, Jesus was not really a human. He was a phantom. He, he appeared to be a human on the outside. He was like deity in, in an android body that looked human, but he was not fully human. That was the heresy. First John 4 lets us know that the apostles fought this heresy. Verse 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God for Many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess is not from God. Does not confess Christ in the flesh is what he's saying there. That was a problem already in the, the early church. I mean, think about it. Here's it's, it's kind of understandable. After the resurrection and after seeing the miracles and after watching Jesus have dominion over the elements, weather, commanding the storms to be still, after he showed power to reproduce food and to multiply and feed thousands and heal the sick and even raise the dead himself, and then his resurrection, after all of that, nobody had a problem believing he was God. The problem was to believe he was human at all. But he was human. He was human, and it is vital that we understand that and that we relate to that as far as our salvation goes. We must see Christ, the man of sorrows, suffering for us in our place as one of us. That's what John 1.14 says, does it not? And when it says, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. So, if he's human, that means he has human emotions. He has human feelings. You see, Jesus was not just, as I said, in some android humanist, humanesque, replicant type body. And yet, in his deity, he wasn't phased by anything. That's not it. We sometimes get that perception. But we must consider him the man. The human in flesh. And he had emotions. Now, I know, uh, as uh, Reformed theologians, we shy away from this idea. When we begin to talk about feelings and emotions, uh, we cringe a little bit. Uh, you remember the old um, 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 deodorant commercial, uh, Air and Extra Dryers, are, are one of those that it said the motto was, never let them see you sweat. Remember that? Well, reformers also have a motto. It's called, never let them see you smile. 
or, or never let them see joy, right? And sometimes we, we are guilty of this, folks, but we, 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 we must look at Christ and see that he not only was human, but he was fully human and he had full emotions, the full spectrum of emotions and feelings that we feel he felt. John Calvin said, Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. That's why Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That word sympatheo, sympathy, literally means to feel in one's heart what another feels in their heart. Christ can... He does this with us. He, he feels what's in your heart because he had a human heart. And he sympathizes with our weaknesses. This is glorious. I mean, man, we could go on and on. But this is why he's the friend of sinners. This is why he's a, brother, a, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. This is why we can go to him we can literally go to him. Yes, we have pastors and friends and, and, and fellow believers, brothers and sisters. And we, we, yes, we confess our sins one to another and we pray for one another. We encourage one another. But there is no greater solace that you have, no greater resource that is there available to you that knows exactly what you're feeling than Jesus. He knows. So I just want to take a few minutes to consider the emotions of the man, Jesus. The feelings of the man as he makes his way toward the cross to give his life for us. What were some things that he felt? Well, he felt sorrow and agony. He felt sorrow and he felt agony. We look at Matthew 26. This is this night where Christ has Going to the garden to pray, waiting to be betrayed. But look what he says. Then Jesus went to them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I just want to stop and say, folks, those are real words. He wasn't just appearing to be sorrowful. He wasn't putting on an act. He was sorrowful unto death. He says, remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face again and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. And we skip over that and we see the obedience of Christ and we see the faithfulness of Christ and his, his belief in the promises of the Father. And he, he, he knows all things ultimately in his divine side. He knows all things will turn out ultimately according to the Father's will. But folks, we cannot stop to consider the man, Jesus. When he says, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, he meant it. That's a man in agony crying out 
Father, let it not be. Let it pass. I'm afraid. My flesh is in great anxiety and fear. This is real. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. I mean, folks, even though, I mean, this is mind-boggling to us. Even though the sovereign nature of Christ knew what was coming and what the ultimate outcome would be, it did not minimize at all the absolute fear and horror and trembling he suffered in his human heart as a man facing torture and death. I mean, Luke 22, 41 and 44 give us another clue and a look into this a little bit deeper. Look, look what Luke says. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. But look, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is real. There's a human condition. Hematidrosis. It is real. It's rare, but it's real, and it's connected to our fight-or-flight response as humans. And when we face something that's so unbearable, something that causes us such weight and anguish, it literally breaks open our blood vessels. Our blood vessels burst and under the skin, the little vessels under the skin, they, they burst and the blood is squeezed out through our sweat. That's how Christ sweat great drops of blood. But folks, this is a human condition. Showing us again in the most vivid way that Jesus was fully man. He was human. Yes, fully God. But we're considering Jesus the man. And that great anguish, this is what we have to keep coming back to if we are a believer. This anguish was for us. It was for us. He also faced betrayal. He knows what it means. So, so here's my point. If you've been sorrowful and you've been very much, you know, in agony and you've suffered much, folks, Christ knows. He, he sympathizes with you. He knows because he suffered more than any of us will ever suffer. But that doesn't minimize the fact that he cares about our suffering. He sympathizes with it, no matter how small it is. That's why we can go to him and must go to him daily, moment by moment. But also he saw and faced and felt betrayal and utter loneliness. And these are words that we're familiar with in our world. Loneliness. Hurt, betrayal by friends. Being deceived by somebody. Christ knows. Christ felt this. Probably the obvious place to go is Matthew 26, verses 46 through 50, as we talk about Judas. Same garden that Jesus has been agonizing over our sin being placed upon him and him facing the wrath of God. He's suffering that, but now he says, rise, let us be going. 
See, my betrayer is at hand. Again, we all through, you cannot deny, all through the Gospels we see the glimpses of the divine and the human in Christ. Again, no one denies who is orthodox that the divine nature of God was in Christ and the human nature. There's no doubt. You see the glimpses. And here he saw that. He knew. He knew. Hey, they're they're coming. They said, what do you mean? Just trust me. (laughs) My betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and from the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus and at once said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And, and, and look at the words of Christ here. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Again, we understand the divine son of Christ knew and even ordained that Judas would be his betrayer. The divine knew and ordained that Judas would be the betrayer. But the man, Jesus, called him friend and he meant it. Judas was his friend. The man, Jesus, was betrayed by a friend. He felt that pain that was real. The deception cut deep. Friend, do what you must do. He was taken the same night to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where he was falsely accused, beaten, ridiculed. He's probably on the second floor of Caiaphas' home, and in the courtyard below is a man named Peter. And can, I can't, can't even fathom it. In the midst of what Christ is going through, the, the false mock of a trial, the false accusations and lies, the beatings, punching him in the face, Outside in the courtyard, Peter has just denied him three times. I never knew this guy. The one who said, I'll go to death with you, Christ. I'll never, I'll never leave you. And we cannot forget this, folks. The word that he used for Judas, friend, he felt for all of them. Genuine friendship as a human being, trusting his life to someone else. Living life for three and a half years, closer than most of us can even imagine, And yet Peter denies him. And Luke tells us, Jesus looked out the window, looked at Peter, and their eyes met. I can't even fathom the betrayal. Betrayed by Judas, hours later betrayed by Peter. Christ knows what it means to have a friend lie to you. He knows what it means to be deceived and be hurt by someone else. He knows. He feels it. It's real. Can't even imagine this. And then the loneliness. This is the part that, again, it's just hard to comprehend. The God of the universe, the sovereign God, condescended. As Dan prayed, the, the condescending. That's the mystery. God condescended to become one of us. We can't fathom it. But here he is. 
Legend says that there was a pit or a dungeon in, in the back of Caiaphas' house. Jesus had to be held somewhere that night before his crucifixion the next day. And tradition has it that he was taken to this dungeon, a hole in the ground. I think it's, and again, this is a bit of speculation here, but I think it fits well with Psalm 88. I'll just read this to you. I, th- I think it's kind of a, a prophetic word from the Psalms, a foreshadow of what Christ would suffer as the suffering servant, the loneliness that he would feel. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to death. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me and you have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. No matter what the truth of that tradition is, Jesus was alone by himself the night before his crucifixion. I can just see, I can just in my mind, picture, if he is in this pit, this hole in the ground, totally alone, totally forsaken by everyone who's ever been a friend. Can you imagine this, again, this conundrum we have between the, 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 the divine and the human in one? I, can't, I, can't, I, I, I can see him look up out of that hole and maybe he saw a couple of the stars that he had made, that he named the sovereign God and yet as a man forsaken and alone as he looks up awaiting the next day where he will be crucified. Man, and I can't help but also think there's something else on his mind that very night as he's alone, as he's betrayed, as he's suffering. You know the other thing on his mind? Me. We'll get to that in a minute. Oh, what a brother we have in Christ. He also suffered shame and humiliation. You ever been humiliated? Oh, man. Anybody that went to middle school probably has been at some point. Shamed, humiliated, mocked, embarrassed. So was Jesus. He knows. He knows. He sympathizes with all of it because he was fully human. And he knows what shame is like none of us. Even his crucifixion, John 19 tells us the story. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. We see prophecy fulfilled as Christ is being hung on this cross. The soldiers, it's customary for them to take the outer garments and sell them and divide them up. But this tunic was so valuable, one piece, very valuable. They they said, we're going to cast lots for that. Just by chance they said that. (laughs) Fulfilling hundreds of year old prophecy that they would do it. But here's the key about that. It was an undergarment. 
Christ was naked on the cross. I know many have debated this, but the very idea of Roman crucifixion was to humiliate and shame the person on the cross. It was a tool of cruel intimidation. The person was on display for days, usually, hanging on this post, which now became a billboard for all to walk by and see the power of Rome. You don't mess with us. Or you'll be put to shame and humiliation like this person. That's what's going on here. Christ is naked, hanging, shameful for all eyes to look at him. We know from other accounts that the high priests are spitting on him and mocking him and people are making fun of him. He felt that shame, despised by everyone around him. I mean, think about 1 Corinthians one twenty three. It, it reiterates this fact of how shameful, ludicrous, humiliating the cross was. Paul said, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Why was that? Because the Jews were ashamed of nakedness, of one hanging naked before the eyes of all. The Greeks looked at it as so foolish. Your king is on a cross. <laughs> what? It's a stumbling block and it's foolishness. Because it's so shameful and degrading. As we were so eloquently informed by Dr. Pennington, the idea that it's the backward king, right? He's the king. But in his installment, it was different than any other king. Instead of receiving a royal robe, he was put a, a robe on open sores only to be ripped off again just to tear open those sores. He received a crown, all right, but it was a crown of thorns beaten into his brain, into his skull. He had a throne, but it was called a cross. He was nailed upon it. It's a, it's a backward kingdom to the world. It's foolishness. I mean, one of the other great evidences of how foolish and shameful the cross was meant to be is the first depiction of the crucifixion probably ever discovered. It was discovered in 1857. It dates back to the second century. It's known as the Alexamenos Graffito. The Alexamenos Graffito. I don't know if you can see it clearly. You can see it there on the, on the screen. And, and this thing was discovered. It, it was etched into the plaster of a wall in a building near the Palatine Hill in Rome. And this building was used by Emperor Caligula as, as the imperial palace for some years, but then later it was transformed into a school for page boys. They trained the page boys at the school. And that's probably the time this artwork, <laughs> this graffiti was done. As these page boys are being trained, they all live there in, in the house. And evidently there was a young Christian there. And he was made fun of. He was ridiculed. He was shamed. And that's what this picture is. It's a picture of one hanging on a cross with the head of an ass. Mockery! What a joke! This is the God that these Christians claim to follow. And the inscription reads, Alexa Minos worships his God. Because you see the young man at the foot of that cross with his hands raised. They meant this as a derision, folks. I think this is the badge of what every Christian should look to. 
We are counted as fools for Christ's sake all the day long. We need not get to this place where we think the world's going to accept us, folks. It's not. I don't care. We need to love. We need to speak the truth in love. But we can never be deceived into thinking that a lost world who hates God will ever embrace his cross without the grace of God. They mock. It's a shame. And as our Savior suffered great shame, we will suffer great shame. But he knows, and therefore we can go to him. As a church, that's what we do, right? We, the church comes together. And here's why it's so interesting when you see in the book of Acts, the active church, the church on mission, right? They are preaching Christ everywhere, and yet they're suffering persecution because of that. They're being mocked. They're being ridiculed. And what does the church constantly do? They come together and they pray. And they build each other up. And they point each other back to the Christ, the, the Savior, who feels their shame. And they identify with him because he identified with them. That's what he did. So we're constantly drawing each other back to him. Look to him and find rest. But finally, I just want to close real quickly with one more emotion. Jesus felt joy. <laughs> he felt joy. The Hebrews 12, 2. Look at this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is glorious, folks. Why, why is this glorious? Because what was so joyful, I mean, we see right now there's not a lot of things joyful about this cross, not only the physical suffering as a human being, but the supernatural suffering of the God of heaven pouring out an eternity's worth of wrath on Christ for us. And then the shame and the mocking. But what was joyful? Here's what was joyful. Basically, Jesus looked past the cross to see its fulfillment in us, his bride, whom he gave his life for. That's, that's the joy. I mean, look at this. Jesus, as, as a man, could have joy in the midst of suffering, pain, shame, agony, sorrow. Why? Because he believed the promises of his Father. What do I mean? John 6, 37 and 40, Jesus knew that he was promised some, something. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For, all, for, for, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up. On the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Christ had great joy in the midst of all of this other suffering because he knew, he knew that he would accomplish the task. Yes, yes, I, I understand the human side, but the divine side is there as well. And so I'm going to cheat a little bit on this last one. There's joy because he knew what was coming. Yes, but folks, we know what's coming. We know what's coming. We have the word of God. The sovereign God who saved us did not leave us empty in this world, but he gave us the words of his promises. And we can hope in those. And I don't mean hope in the sense of, boy, I hope that happens. I mean confident expectation. 
I cannot wait until God delivers on his promise. And he has the resurrection and the coming, coming, uh, the coming eschatological fulfillment. Amen. We know it's coming by faith. So my encouragement to all of us today, I hope you can run to the man of sorrows when you're hurting, when you have sorrow, when you've been rejected, when you've been hurt by somebody you love more than life, and you've been left alone, and you've been shamed and made fun of, you can run to Christ. He is a solace. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And as he says here, all that come unto me, I won't cast out, but I will take into my wings of love and nurture you because I sympathize with you. I have suffered for you. I am your solace and your savior. So let us rejoice, folks, that he became man in full, that he might save us in full. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the man Christ Jesus suffered and relates to us in all ways. But we thank you also, Father, for the joy that he had is the joy he gives us. And we look forward to an eternity serving you, being productive for your glory and your kingdom, where all of these hurts and pains and betrayals and sorrows will be no more. But constant joy at thy right hand. We love you and thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.